Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. All right. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, good, to, good to be with you. My name is John, and we're going to talk about something called redemptive entrepreneurship. Um, to start, I'd love to just get to, to uh, know you a little bit so we can have a two-way conversation uh, about this. Um, why are you here? What, what's about, what about this session made you come here amidst, I wouldn't have come to this session. There's a lot of really other cool ones out there. So tell me why uh, you, you picked it. Yeah. Great. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. Does any, anyone else have that businesses are bad? Do you hear that out there? Some some of that? <laughs> I saw a few people kind of laugh at that one. Yeah. Okay. Where do you hear that? Where is that coming from? Big capitalism. Okay. Yep. Big capitalism. Desire for um, profit and not serving others. Ah, desire for profit. Yep. Not serving others. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's really good. Did everyone hear that? It's kind of this, that often in the church there's, and people refer to it as like a sacred secular divide that basically says the missionaries are the sort of highest, that's the highest calling. And I, I think, you know, in that I think we, if we've broken down the sacred secular divide, which says like we should go out in all spheres of culture and all participate in God's work in the world, no matter where you are, if we've somehow broken that down, I think a lot of times our tendency is to replace the sacred secular uh, with a nonprofit business divide that says nonprofits are automatically more virtuous and better than businesses. Um, one thing that, that we've learned, we work with both nonprofits and businesses, and we say all the time that legal structure is not a question of virtue, it's a strategy question. Like, what's the best strategy to accomplish the mission of what we're trying to do? It's not a virtue question, because we actually see nonprofits can be just as exploitative as businesses, right? So, cool. Anyone else, why are you here? Uh, I'm a hospitality management major, so obviously working that directly with a lot of customers. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How many, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, and you're thinking entrepreneurially about doing that, it sounds like. Yeah, that's great. No, I love that. That's a great application of the 
entrepreneurship is, is, you know, it's not just like a particular action. It's actually a mindset that I think we can all go out into the world and be entrepreneurial in everything that we do. Um, so that's a great, that's a great way for us to think about and define this is all the conversation that we're going to have is not just for people that are going to be founders. Um, we often say the, the work that we get to do, uh, at Praxis, we work with, uh, entrepreneurs, builders, and creatives. And the reality is, is most of us will never start our own thing that we, that ends up being this wild success. We will join something that somebody else has already started. And I consider that kind of the builder category. Um, in a lot of ways, I've been a builder my whole life. I've always joined other people at Praxis. I was the first employee that wasn't a founder. I wasn't the founder myself, but I got to start a whole bunch of stuff within it because it's a very entrepreneurial environment. Um, and we're always starting new things. So, um, so there's a lot of different ways to think about it. So whether you're an entrepreneur, a builder, a creative, uh, hopefully all the we're going to talk about is going to apply to you. So uh, this morning's uh, public reading of scripture, I thought that was pretty powerful. And I've actually been kind of sitting on this part of Genesis. Um, and uh, it's just been kind of fascinating. Um, and one of my observations is this kind of astonishing thing that happens so, uh, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make every, uh, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, uh, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gives, gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And this is why this is totally astonishing to me. Naming. Anyone know who this is? <laughs> A couple of you. Who is it? And do you know what this picture is from? First iPhone launch, right? That, that's not that iPhone 12 or whatever, 16 they got out these days. This is the OG, right? <laughs> Has anyone ever watched this press conference? I mean, this is a masterclass in storytelling. I mean, it's just brilliant. He does this whole presentation and goes through the whole thing and then holds the device up and said, this is 20 years of work and innovation. It's literally like his whole life's dream to bring this thing into being, right? All of his creativity, creative capacity. He holds it up and says, meet iPhone, right? And everybody goes, Ooh, iPhone. <laughs> it's like in Toy Story, the claw. <laughs> and now the ritual repeats itself every September when Apple does the whole thing and then holds it up and says, meet iPhone 26. You know, <laughs> at some point they're going to get more creative than that now. But, um, but naming is the crowning part of the creative process. Can you imagine if Jobs had held that thing up and said, meet, actually, I don't know, I ran out of ideas. What do you guys think? What do you guys think we should call it? Any, any ideas? Anyone? Right. No way, right? He named it because that was this iconic thing. And now that thing, that name that he's given it has had this place in our culture. It has shaped culture in miraculous, crazy ways. The iPhone has shaped culture. Right? Back to Genesis. What does God do at his moment of crowning creation? 
What does he do? Calls it good. What else does he do? He lets man name every beast of the field. Let's walk him out. Look at this thing. What do you want to call it? Man, that thing is crazy. Have you ever thought about a giraffe? Look at that. Look at the neck. The, the, the legs are so huge. Look at those calves. He must work out, but he was just born. I need some calves like that. And the tail, man, tails are crazy. I don't have a tail. What do you, Adam's like, I don't know, uh, elephant? And God's like, nope. <laughs> it's a giraffe, Adam. Come on. No, God doesn't have a checklist waiting for Adam to get the answer right. He just lets him do it. And God has done all of... Listen to this. It's really hard work to figure out how to create a giraffe and the hooves and the tail and the neck and all of the crazy... It's really hard creative work. And at the end of it, God does all the hard work and He invites Adam to do the crowning achievement part, which is to name it. That's pretty cool. And then we got... There's a real elephant. Um, You ever thought about a duck? Ducks are crazy too. Um, So this is what struck me though. So the first time that Adam is declared an image bearer and invited to to do something out of his image bearing, to create something, he creates by naming, he creates out of freedom, and he creates for beauty. I mean, just the word giraffe, the name, I mean, it's just, there's just not, it's just, beauty. It's sort of abundance, right? Like Andy talked about last night. Then we fast forward. Um, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is, I think, from what I read, this is the second time that Adam makes something. What does he make this time? Clothing. Why does he make it? Because of shame. So he first makes out of freedom for abundance and beauty. And his second move is to make out of shame. And he makes to protect himself, to hide from his shame. And so this thing that we're talking about this morning, the fall, the fall has distorted our image bearing, our creative capacities. We see it right there in Genesis, don't we? And so a lot of times when we see people make things in the world, entrepreneurs, they make things maybe out of shame because of the fall. And then we see people do it for acceptance. Entrepreneurs make things because they want to make a name for themselves. They want to become famous. They want to have money, power, and respect, right? And a lot of times 
we see entrepreneurs. There's a lot of stories that we read about entrepreneurs who have made out of this posture. And they actually contribute to more of the fall in our world. But if we look at this full gospel story, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with the fall. We live actually in this place where, you know, Jesus has come to bring about redemption and ultimately restoration, but we live in this middle place. And I think this, this middle place, this sort of already but not yet, where the fall and its effects is in our hearts, in our own lives, in our own imaginations about we, what we should make, and it's in the world that we introduce products and services to. But there's opportunity for us as we make things to ever so slightly bend them toward redemptive possibilities, right? So what does that look like for us to make things in the world that actually don't just go out into the world and whatever happens, happens? If we make things in the world that whatever happens, happens, we know that the sinfulness of our own humanity is going to draw those things toward the fallen parts of us, the broken things. But if we make with intention out of God's original intention for creative capacity, we can actually bend them toward beauty and join God in restoring things. And the reality is like entrepreneurs and builders, they change the world. They shape the world around us. If we think about these, you know, sort of companies that a few years ago were just somebody's idea. And then they actually brought these ideas, they spoke them into being and they brought them into the world and they created companies around them. And each of these companies in their own way have really profoundly shaped culture, right? And they're not just shaping culture, they're shaping our behaviors and how we act in the world, aren't they? Here in Pittsburgh, you've got Heinz Field, right? Um, it's not just a brand, Heinz, that has been sort of creating all these things, but now it's a football stadium that bears the name of the field, right? And then we've got Duolingo. Anyone know that? It's a big Pittsburgh startup that's crushing it and doing well. And so these companies all change the world in some way, shape, or form. It's a question is, are they bending the world toward redemptive things? Or are they bending the world toward broken things? Or are they just kind of neutral? Because I think some things in the world just kind of exist in neutral ways. But the way that people actually make them can be bent one way or the other. And what we've come to see at Praxis is we've started to define this. There's kind of three meta-narratives for organizations and the people that work there that exist in the world. The first is an exploitative. The leaders and the people that are a part of it, they're living for themselves. They actually don't really care about what happens when they make something. They could care less if it goes toward beauty or brokenness because they're just living for themselves. So they leverage culture and they use people as a means to an end. There's another group of people that says that exploitative thing is not good. We should actually make things to make the world a better place, right? We should change the world through entrepreneurship. And this group of people kind of looks at the exploitative and says, we shouldn't do that. We should actually work to improve ourselves. Let's be excellent at what we do. If we're excellent and really care about this, then we can actually contribute to making the world a better place. We could advance culture. And in the process, we can really respect and honor people uh, as we go out and do it. Let me tell you a quick story. When I was an undergrad, I was studying these same things. I remember um, being at my church as a high schooler, deciding where to go to college. 
And I remember the heroes of my youth group had gone off to college a couple years ahead of me. They'd gone off to college, and inevitably, the next spring, they were back in front, and they were on the stage. And you know what they were doing on the stage? They were raising money. Maybe you've seen this happen at your church. What were they raising money for? Anyone seen this happen before in a church? A missions trip. <laughs> a summer missions trip. So, so... They're up there talking about their summer missions trip and how God's calling them to go and do this missions work. And I kept thinking to myself, I mean, that's great. That We should absolutely go do missions work. But why have I never seen a business person be put on that stage to be commissioned to go do missions work in business? Because they're out there every day doing God's work in the mission field of business. And so I cared about this from early on. I went to college a couple friends of mine were Christians. We started having these conversations week in and week out. We'd invite speakers in that were Christians. What does it mean to be a Christian in the marketplace? What does it mean to be a maker in the world? And the meta narrative, I would actually say, is pretty much in this ethical realm. Improve yourself. Be a really good, be really good at what you do. Work hard. Be excellent, right? We should be excellent. Absolutely. And um, we should work at excellent companies that are doing you know, good things, excellent things in the world. And if we do that, we can respect people. And as a Christian, the way that I respect people is, like, I can do the Jesus thing, which is servant leadership. And oh, by the way, you should give money away, right? You should be generous. So what it meant to be a Christian, be excellent, work hard, be nice to people, never do anything immoral, be kind of a moral compass in the workplace, and give money away to the church. So I went out to do that. I went and worked at a large corporation, Fortune 100, and I had a flashback a couple years ago. This is many, many years later that I had this flashback. And I had the flashback because of a certain statistic that I heard. But the situation was this. I was a year and a half into my career at this big corporation, thinking that to be a good Christian in the marketplace... Go up the chain, because the further you go up the chain, by the way, you have more people underneath your leadership, so then you can do more the servant leadership thing to more people. So I was like, okay, I should advance, get promoted. I had an opportunity to be promoted, and I got my big break to show all my bosses how good I was at my job. It was a negotiation where I negotiated with a vendor about a price that we we're going to put on the front cover of an advertisement that was going to go out to millions of homes in the Sunday paper. And basically what happened is the vendor, I had been studying all my competitors. I knew what price they were going to come out in their ad because I had been studying them for months. And I knew what price I wanted to be out in my ad. And I needed the vendor to be a certain cost so I could do that and beat all my competitors. And so go through the negotiation. The vendor says, no way. We can't get to that cost. You're nuts. I said, well, I don't think I'm nuts. This is what we're going to do. And they're like, nope. You can't do that. We, we're, we can't get the price that low. And I said, okay, well, if you can't get the price that low, then I'm going to start shopping this thing that I've promised you for six months that you're going to be on the front cover of this ad. I'm going to go shop it to all the other vendors, and I'm going to find a vendor who can get to that price, right? What do you think they did then? <laughs> they scrambled, and they got to the price, right? They didn't want to get pulled from the front cover of the ad because it was going to cost millions of dollars in, in unit sales. And so I won. A couple weeks later, the ad goes out to those millions of homes. We sell a ton of units. There's a Monday morning ad review after the Sunday paper comes out. We did great. We beat all the competitors. We sold a lot of units. I look like a hero. I'm on my way to getting promoted, going up the chain. Here's when I had the flashback. 
I was talking with an entrepreneur who f- is using their entrepreneurial skills to fight human trafficking. And I found out that there's 24 million people, they estimate, in the world in forced labor. Some of that is sex trafficking, which we all probably know about these days, thanks to great organizations like International Justice Mission, Compassion, these other folks that are out there working on this. But what we don't often hear about is the 16 million, of the 24, 16 million, they estimate, are actually working in the private sector for big companies. Right? They're working jobs, and they're being exploited through the way that they're being treated, through the, the pay that they're getting or not getting in the private sector. And I couldn't help, as I'm list- learning about this, I couldn't help but think back to that negotiation and wonder, did I exploit people? Did I directly exploit people? Because the reality of the world is when a cost gets cut, usually the cost doesn't get cut at the corporate office. Like I don't imagine that the corporate officers and people as they were traveling started staying at Motel 6 instead of Marriott's. I don't think that's where the cost got cut. My guess is the cost got cut by somebody having to work overtime and not get paid for it, or maybe even having their wages get cut as a result of it, right? So back to this, this frame here, I thought I was here, but I actually think I was participating in exploitation. I thought I, was, I thought I was in the ethical. I thought I was being a good person, but I actually think I was participating in exploitation because I was trying to advance my own career and I had too small of a vision of the impact of my work and how it affected other people in the world, particularly other people that I couldn't see, particularly the, the people that Jesus talked about us having eyes to see, the marginalized, the people on the fringes of society. And here's what, here's what I've learned. The whole excellence, let's be good, let's do well by doing good in the world. If we lived in a world where sin and shame and brokenness wasn't out there, ethical would be enough. But we don't live in a world like that. <laughs> we live in a world where there's a lot of exploitation and injustice. And so God's calling in that is to actually go beyond just being ethical people, good moral people in the world, And we actually are supposed to pursue the redemptive, right? That's Jesus' calling. And this is kind of thinking through this. So we define redemptive as following a pattern of creative restoration through sacrifice in our life and work, right? That idea of creative is making new things. Back to the way that God uh, intended for us to be bearers of redemption. Let's make new things. What are those things that we make? What should they do? Well, they should actually participate in restoration. They, re- they should restore systems and things that are broken about the world, right? So we should restore to make things right. And through sacrifice, this is Jesus' model, right? Jesus came as a creative solution in the world to actually redeem us and restore us. But once we're restored, our salvation isn't just a ticket to heaven someday, a fire insurance policy for when we pass away so we can get to heaven and live the good life there. Our salvation is actually, it should animate our every day. And our, our animation be to, would be to follow Jesus, to creatively restore things through sacrifice in the world. So that's what we call redemptive. And we, we kind of plotted on this thing called the redemptive frame 
And the reality is, it's, it, the leader script is kind of the main thing that a lot of people talk about. Is like, who am I in the marketplace? But it, who am I can't, it can't stop there. We actually have to ask critical questions about what we're actually making in the world, which is our sort of strategic intent, the things that we make and how they shape the culture. And then there's also an operating model that also uh, is an operating model kind of creates the organization that goes behind that. So on the strategic access, and I'll give you examples of each of these, the exploitative leverages culture, the ethical advances culture, and the redemptive seeks to actually renew culture. Um, Here's an example. Um, uh, In New York City, where I live, uh, there's there's this example of this series of car washes uh, where they basically were exploiting the workers, Uh, many of them undocumented workers, so they could kind of pay them whatever they wanted. Uh, They were doing kind of, it was the car washes open 24-7, so they were um, kind of giving them these, you know, 16, uh, 12 or 16-hour shifts often. They'd have to work out in the cold. New York's sort of similar weather to this, where it's, it's cold out and you're washing cars, so you're getting wet and freezing out there. And these workers are just being kind of constantly exploited by this car wash. And even the people coming through, they're not paying attention because they're not asking critical questions about who's actually working on this. How about a different vision for a car wash? This is Thomas Kim. Thomas was actually in the real estate industry, and what he realized is most, the reason why most car washes are that way, you ever notice car washes are mostly kind of just crappy and there's not much to it, there's not a great customer experience or anything like that? Well, what he realized in studying real estate is nobody cares about the car wash itself. What they care about is the land because the land is an asset that is accruing value over time. So they can just put a little cash flow business on top of the land to pay the mortgage on the land down. And what they really want to do is eventually hold on to the land until it's really, really valuable and then sell the land for a huge profit, right? They don't actually care about the car wash, so they exploit the people that are working there. So Thomas said, well, what if we had a car wash that was an awesome customer experience. Let's start there. So he basically, I call it millennialization of a car wash. You know, like Warby Parker and Allbirds and all these like really hip kind of millennial direct-to-consumer brands. He basically said, what if we did that to a car wash? Created like a subscription service, really great service. It's beautiful, great branding, great experience. You know, all the things that are kind of crappy experiences of a regular car wash, so let's make them better. But the real reason why he was doing this is because uh, of the people who are often exploited as employees. He realized he could put these car washes in neighborhoods where people have not traditionally had access to education, and he could use the car wash and employing them to educate them. And so he's created this magnificent educational model that teaches somebody they start between 10 and $14 an hour, which is way above what you get in a normal car wash. But from there, the people that want to learn he actually does a whole training program. They learn to run a business and run their own, manage their own P&L within uh, 12 to 18 months. So they basically get trained on how to run a business right there. And if you do well there, you can move up and up and up, and there's all this sort of vision for that. And it's not just about moving up so that you can make more money. Um, this is all on their website uh, in terms of their management training program, and this is like the the last slide, um, that within a few years, you can be making $145,000. Now, if you make $145,000, you can actually bring, the economists actually say, I think the line is closer to $70,000. That actually is the tipping point for being able to take a family out of generational poverty 
and change future outcomes for that family in terms of kids being able to go to college. And, you know, if you go to college, you have technically better outcomes in terms of career possibilities. So that's the kind of stuff. But it's not just that money. It's about bringing those families out of generational poverty and it's training people for the fourth industrial revolution and different kinds of skills that they're going to need for the jobs as the robots come and continue to take more and more blue-collar jobs in America. So it's this beautifully restorative thing that sees injustice in the world and actually wants to seize exploitation, attacks it, and actually moves um, to renew culture. On the operating model side, Thomas is doing the same thing. He's not just using people for their wages or their, their labor. He's not just respecting them by paying them a fair wage. He's actually moving beyond that and saying, how can I bless you and bless your entire family and your family's family through your working here? That's a pretty radical way of doing things. That is the, where we think the redemptive edge is for a car wash. Um, so the last one I'll just talk about here. And by the way, we have hundreds of stories like this of entrepreneurs. This is Kelly. I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to be able to tell her story in full. But uh, the short version of it is that she's working with women who are coming out of abusive situations who are often struggling with addiction, addiction as a way to cope with the abuse that they're experiencing in their homes. Um, and now they're in sort of a recovery home. But the recovery home can only do so much, she re- realized, because people are created in the image of God to work. They actually need good work to do, too, not just uh, sobriety. And so she created a company called Unshattered, where they're making these products and giving these women's jobs. But they're not, again, they're not just giving them jobs. Uh, they actually practice this ancient Japanese art of kintsugi where they weave gold into the products on the inner side of the products. And kintsugi was made from pieces of pottery that were broken, and most people would just discard them. But the Japanese artists took them and actually re-put them back together with gold, and they said that this thing was actually more beautiful for having been broken. So you can imagine, this isn't just a job where they're making some jewelry or something like that. This is a job where they're making these bags and these products, yes, but as they're making them, they're literally practicing this ancient art, and the ancient art sends a message of, I am also more beautiful for having been broken in the brokenness I've experienced. That is a way that the work can actually bless people. It's pretty beautiful, right? By the way, Kelly, uh, she's, she went to a small liberal arts school. She studied engineering. And before she started this, was running like a billion-dollar part of a business for a large Fortune 50 company. <laughs> she left it to go do this. Crazy. Um, the last one is redemptive leadership. Um, and the deal is, is that the world is going to tell us that we should use our creativity and our creative capacity to live for self. We know better than that. We often will use that then to just improve ourselves, right? We create to just improve ourselves. But Jesus actually says the, the path is to die to self. Um, and so, so how do we take our ambition and submit it to God and allow that to be resurrected only by him? Show a video here. Kind of cool work, huh? So <clears throat> the, one of the guys, uh, Brett Hagler, had started a couple of different companies uh, in his early college career and went through this radical kind of transformation coming back to his faith and just started saying, how do I use my creative entrepreneurial capacities for somebody else other than just myself? And uh, started this 
he was in Haiti after the earthquake and part of that response and just sort of seeing the housing that was being built uh, post-disaster and just was kind of saying, like, we have to have a better solution. <laughs> There's got to be a better solution than these sort of, like, tents and tarps uh, to give people houses. And then started doing what a lot of uh, nonprofits, NGOs that are trying to build homes do. But their, their first move was to say, how do we co-create? Because a lot of times people just come in and say, okay, I'm going to build a house for you, and here you go. But they realized that that wasn't very dignifying for the people that they actually, so they wanted to work with them to help, you know, hey, you tell us what your community should look like. Where should the houses go? Where should the park go? They, they were doing things like building parks, not just houses, um, to actually create a whole community. And they were doing rigorous data on it, some really cool stuff. Um, and then they realized, though, that the problem was just so big that they were like, we need bigger thinking. We need a bigger solution. Like, how do we think it's, if, if we're dealing with a problem where a billion people in the world lack access to sustainable shelter, we need big thinking. And at the time, we knew another group who was working on uh, figuring out how to 3D print a home. And they thought that was a wild idea. And we said, you should talk to these guys that are trying to th- build homes for the least, uh, the, the people who don't have access to it. Because a lot of times with a breakthrough technology like that, it goes to the top first. And what happened here, because they're sort of submitting their ambition, uh, that they actually brought this technology. And actually, they had to design the technology in a totally different way because of where they wanted to print these houses. Um, Because they were going to go to print them in communities where there's often like uh, the first community they had to deal with like mudslides and uh, lack of uh, sort of uh, power a lot of times because power will get cut off in these communities. So they actually had to invest more money in designing extra things in the technology by choosing to go to serve, use this technology for those people. So that is kind of this journey of redemptive leadership, which is to die to self, to say, I could go here with this thing and I could use it for fame and fortune, but I'm actually going to use this creative capacity that I have to serve people uh, who maybe need it more. So some pretty cool stuff. Um, and uh, just kind of two points here, uh, and then we'll do some, some Q&A. Um, why, why do we think this is so important? The first is we think that entrepreneurs are the ones who build and shape the culture, the society that we live in. So if we, if we don't participate in that, it's just going to go whatever way it goes. Uh, we think, and we also think that fundamentally Christians are called to do this stuff. <laughs> and we think the future of the church is also in, in some ways at stake here. The church's public witness depends not on what we say, right? Part of the crisis of the church in the West today is because what we say we believe is disconnected from the actions that we take, right? That's a disembodied witness. And so we want to see Christians that really put their faith into action in these ways. Um, So, yeah, that's kind of some of the stuff that we work on. And we've worked at Praxis, we get to work with both nonprofits and for-profits through what we call a startup accelerator that works with these companies and helps them scale their solutions and really helps them in their own journeys of becoming redemptive leaders. And by the way, as much as I've told these stories as if they're sort of heroic, they're not heroic stories. Uh, These people that are deeply (laughs) humble and struggling with their own journeys of trying to die to self, which is a really (laughs) difficult thing. And it's just daily practice. And the other thing that I want to say here is like, we always use the word that like redemptive entrepreneurship is not a destination we arrive at. It's a journey that we decide to take. 
Because it's not like, oh, we figured out how to be redemptive in housing or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. Man, every day is a journey, right? And we never arrive. If we figured out sort of some semblance of redemptive possibility in one area of our work, there's probably three or four areas that we want to keep working on over here, right? And we might start working on these ones, and then this one doesn't actually turn out the way that we thought it would. So entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurial journey is imperfect. This is messy stuff. It's way messier than the sort of clean way that I present it. So I just want to say that as, as a little bit of a disclaimer there. Um, these people are not heroes that are just trying to pursue what they think uh, God has called them to do in the world. Uh, and the final thing that I'd say about it is um, uh, these people are much more like uh, you and I than we think. The often the temptation with those sort of hero stories is to say these people are out there, they're doing amazing work, and they're somebody different than I am. Um, I am probably like many of you. I grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere. Um, and my dad was a teacher and my mom was a nurse. And for some reason, God has done some crazy stuff in my life, and I ended up in New York City, and I met some people, and I ended up getting to work on this thing and help build this organization that works with these people doing all this crazy work in the world. It's like, I don't know how I got here, except for God's sort of grace. So I think God has a common grace around all of us in our careers. One of the the CEO of the 3D printing uh, uh, tech company, he grew up in a tiny town in like West Texas, and his, he thought he was going to become a minister, actually. And somebody told him that he should go work in the workplace, not be a pastor. <laughs> I'm glad that he didn't. Um, so, so these people, that, even though they seem like they have huge ideas and doing this crazy stuff, they're not unlike most of us, right? And that they grew up in small towns and are like, who am I to make something big in the world? But I think that goes back to where we started, right? Who are you to make something big in the world? You're created in the image of God, Right? Shoot, that's of cosmic importance. This isn't just of earthly importance. That's of cosmic importance that we were created in the image of God. We are created in freedom to create in freedom and to create beauty and bring about restoration in the world. That's like the calling. And that's wild. That's wild. So to say like, I'm not, who am I to have a big idea? Who am I to work on this stuff? Who are, you, who are you to tell God that he made a mistake by making you, right? Don't do that. These people that are doing this big stuff, they're, they're on the journey too to step in into big things and they just do it every day by saying, geez, I'm, sc- I'm scared, scared to death kind of of this thing. I've got anxiety. I don't think I could do this, but God just makes a way. And that's because we don't, we don't make out of shame. We don't make to be accepted. We make because of who... Uh, who created us and who gave us permission, who gave us that creative capacity. So um, I just want to encourage all of you, whether this presentation is intimidating or encouraging, I want to encourage you both ways. Um, so anyway, we got a few minutes for, we got about 15 minutes to, to do questions and, and chat about all this. So.